so what Pharaoh does, because he is afraid, because of his pride, he imposes a harsh labor on the Hebrews and he forces them to build what scripture says is store cities. And what we talked about last week, it's important to understand that scholars believe these store cities were places where uh, there would be uh, things stored for Pharaoh to be worshiped after he was, uh, after he was dead. He was gonna be, well, he was worshiped then as deity and, and he was storing things up for him to be worshiped as, as a God after he was dead. But what's incredible about the story, and, and scripture does this in a really cool way, the narrator gives us names of some people and doesn't give us names of others. But what we discover is that the most powerful man in the world that we, that we know of at that moment is resisted and, and countless lives are saved because of a group of Hebrew midwives. Uh, this group of Hebrew midwives that are of, of no significance in, uh, in worldly terms, they are of no significance. They are named and they, uh, they push back against Pharaoh and his, and his policies and they continue to bring uh, sons into the world and defy uh, Pharaoh's command to kill uh, the males. Well, this doesn't go well. Pharaoh continues to see his policy not working well and so he gets even more intense. At the end of chapter Chapter 1 in verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Now there's a bit of irony already in that that's gonna get played out even more. Who is it that thwarted Pharaoh's plan already? Is it the males or the females? Now, it's the females that have already thwarted his plan, but here he has a policy set against uh, these males and that's gonna, that's gonna get him here again in just a second as we dive into, uh, into chapter two. But in chapter two, we're gonna get a focused in view on Moses' birth. Now, Throughout our journey through Exodus, and it's gonna be true here as well, what I want you to understand is that as we read this, we are gonna be highlighting points that, that point us to Jesus. All throughout the story, there's little breadcrumbs, there's these little windows and pictures into the coming one, the Messiah, and we're gonna pick those up as we go along in the story. We're doing this because this is exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus, after his resurrection, when Jesus joins the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they are sad and dejected because of his crucifixion and they're trying to figure out what was going on, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, joins them. And in Luke chapter 24, it says that Jesus said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so what does Jesus do in order to help them understand who he is and what he's done? He takes them back into the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And he says, see, it was all about me all along. All throughout this narrative, it's been pointing to my work and what I would do. And more specifically, Jesus is going to use the main event in the book of Exodus, 
the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, he's gonna use that as the interpretive backdrop for what, his, what he is going to do. His death and resurrection makes a way for another exodus, and he's gonna use this one as a way of talking about what he was doing. So we're gonna point out little nuggets, little places where, where we have similarities, where we need to be thinking, oh, this is pointing us to Jesus. And the first one's gonna hit us right here in this story for Moses. So Moses, interestingly enough, you can read here, Moses is born to, uh, um, into the house of Levi. It says, a man from the house of Levi takes a wife uh, that is a Levite woman and they bear a son and this is Moses. So Moses is born in the context of the most powerful nation in the world, but he's born into a Jewish family being oppressed and enslaved by that power. So the moment that he is born, his life is immediately at risk as the powers in Egypt, as we just read, have put out basically a kill order for all male children of the Israelites. So this is one of those breadcrumb moments, just like Mary and Joseph, in the moment that Jesus is born, just like Mary and Joseph exercise huge faith as they, as they go and seek uh, to hide the child from the threat, Moses' parents do the exact same thing. The child is born and they take quick steps to hide him, to conceal him, and then to preserve his life because there is a threat, there is an order on his life. And so it points us to, forward to the birth of Jesus. But I want you to notice a couple of things that show up several times in the first 10 verses in chapter two. Depending on the version of the Bible that you are reading, depending on which translation, it may or may not really show up very obviously, but this is, this is pretty neat. It says in verse two, the very first thing that we have is that the woman, speaking of Moses' mother, conceived and bore a son, and the ESV says, and when she saw that the child was a fine child. So he saw that he was a fine child. Other versions say, when she saw that he was good. Mark read for us this morning and said that he saw when he was beautiful. There's a theme here that we're gonna grab that's gonna show up a few more times in these 10 verses, but it's that theme of seeing. So the first thing that we, uh, we are brought into is that Moses' mom sees that he is a fine child, sees that he is good, sees that he is beautiful. What's really cool is that that phrase, seeing that something is good, is, is somewhere else in scripture. Do you recall in the creation narrative when God uh, is creating, the thing that God says is that he saw that what he created was what? Good. God saw what he created and it was good. And then that comes to a climax at the end of creation when God steps back from it and says that it is very Good. And so the language here of Moses' mother seeing that he is a fine child, seeing that he is good, is a direct parallel to the language used about what God sees and about what God calls good. The writer here is directing us to a parallel. He's keying us in on an important fact that Moses' mother is keyed into what God sees and calls good. 
Her assessment of the child is the same assessment of the child that God would have. Her view is in alignment with the view of God. She saw that he was good. Now, this is important because what happens next is that Moses' parents and his mother is highlighted here, they act in alignment with what they see. They act in alignment with what they see. Now we already know there are orders that are dictated for the way in which they ought to act according to the powers that be. Pharaoh has given specific orders as to what should happen to this child. But what does, what does Moses' mother do? Does she act in accordance with that order or does she act in accordance with what she sees and what aligns with God's heart? She acts in accordance with what she sees, which is in alignment with God's heart. And her acting in that way causes her again, here we go again, causes Pharaoh to be defied and God's will to be done because she chooses to act in alignment with God's design and purpose for the child. Now, his preservation is remarkable, and this is another moment where we're gonna get linked back to the book of Genesis. It says that they made a basket for him. Now, I don't know about you, but you have kind of a way that you have pictured that basket as you've heard this, heard this story right? You've got to picture this basket. Now, I don't know why I've never really thought of it much, but my basket would sink. The one that I've pictured, it would totally sink. Like, I don't know. I've just never really thought much about the holes that are in a basket. But if you think about the baskets we pass, for example, for an offering, that's a lot like what I am imagining Moses gets put into. And I want to just tell you, that's not the case at all. We need to see here that there's a whole different description that's given. That actually, the words that are used are really important. Verse three, it says, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitmen and pitch. Now, how many times do you think those three words, the basket and then what it's made of, how many times do you think those show up in scripture aside from this one? Give me, a, give me an idea. How many of you think it's more than five? Raise your hand. That we see those three words together more than five times in scripture. Raise your hand. Okay? So good. This is not going well. None of you believe that. I wasn't real convincing. All right. How many of you think it's between three and five? I don't know. Let's try some. Somebody's got to get it wrong. Thank you, volunteers, for getting it wrong. Somebody's got to get it wrong. That's good. Yeah, not three and five. It only shows up one other time. One other time. And you know where that is? Yeah, there you go. I heard it. Noah. The only other time that we get these words in all of Scripture and to put together is Noah's ark. So the way that we would read this, what Moses' parents do is they build an ark. Now, I think it's smaller. I think it's smaller. <laughs> right? There's no two by two here. This is one like this. I think it's smaller. But the same words that are used to describe Noah's Ark and what it was made out of and how it was covered and sealed are the very same words that are used right here. And what's happening in Noah's story? Why are we being drawn to what this is made of? Because in Noah's story, it's the ark that preserves the righteous. In Noah's story, it's the ark that preserves God's plan for humanity, God's rescue agent, that family, that righteous family that God will bring about redemption and salvation from. That's what the ark is preserving. And right here, 
The agent that God has chosen to lead his people out, Moses, before he can even form a word, is preserved also in the ark. Can you just say that's cool? It is. Very good. You're right. It's very cool. In verse 4 through 7, we're going to see this again. This theme is going to show up again. So she, Moses' mother takes him in this basket and she, it says that she put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the riverbank. So she does what she was told. She places the child in the river, doesn't she? She technically follows that order. Pharaoh never said anything about an ark, right? So here she is defying that order. It's amazing. I love it. Just the little things. But watch this. So she puts the child in it and placed him among the reeds. And his sister stood at a distance to know. Some versions say, and this is really important, that his sister stood at a distance to, what do you think? See what would happen. There's that theme again of seeing. So his sister stands at a distance to see. She stands to see what will happen, to know what would be done to him. Now, this is crazy. So this is Moses' sister, Miriam. And scholars believe that at this point, Miriam would have been about six years old. So here's this six-year-old watching all of this happen, wondering why her brother's life is being treated different than her own, but watching her parents hide him and then watching them take care of him as they place him in the night. And she's just gonna go, I'm, I gotta see what happens. So she is standing by to see this six-year-old. Now, I can't pass this moment by without telling you that there's a really special six-year-old in the house today that turned six today. Her name is Sarah McDonald, and she's right over there. Yep, my little one turned six today, and I just was reading this, and I was, as I, when I learned, like, man, she's six years old. I'm just, I'm literally imagining Sarah watching what's going to happen to him. I can't imagine what that moment would have been like. What would that moment have been like for Moses' parents as they, as they trusted God, they trusted what they saw, they trusted that they were in alignment with God's will, the faith that it took for them to go, we are gonna preserve his life at all costs and for this six-year-old standing at the bank to, to watch and to see what God was going to do. But then... What happens, there's more seeing. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh, and we don't actually know that this is his biological daughter. It could certainly be the case, but we know that this is somebody that is very, very, very close to and part of that inner circle, part of the family. But it says that Pharaoh's, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Now, what happens? She what? So you're getting better at this, like the 10 of you that said that, you're getting better at this. She, everybody together, saw. She saw the basket or the ark among the reeds and she sent her servant women uh, and she took it. When she opened it, speaking of, of those that are serving her, she what? Saw the child. Do you see it? There's a message that's coming through to us if we are listening. She saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on it and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister Miriam, who's watching, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go to, and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? We're gonna pick that up here in just a second. 
But what is this repetition of the word see? Why is our attention being drawn to that? We've got the daughter of Pharaoh seeing the basket, one of her servants seeing the child, them all beholding, Miriam watching together. All of this is based on this word see. And what's happening at every turn, every time we hear that word see, someone is acting in defiance of Pharaoh's order. Every time we have that word see, someone is acting in defiance of Pharaoh's order. What did Pharaoh say? Where should the child be? In the Nile. And what does the daughter of Pharaoh do? Draws him out because of what she sees. So there's a connection there between what is being seen and what is being acted on. Now, how many of you, if, I don't know if you're like me in this at all, but I, I read these stories, I hear stories from you, and I often imagine as I listen to a story or as I read in scripture, I often imagine, what would I do? What would I do in the same, did anybody else think that way? You just kind of put yourself in those shoes and go, what would I, what would I do in those, in those moments? And how many of you would like to believe that you would also be the ones that see and defy I want that to be true of me in the story. I want to be one of the ones that sees and knows what God's will is and knows God's heart. And even though I'm being told to do something different, I act in accordance with God's will. That's what I would like to believe. Whether you think that about me or not, I'm going to let you keep to yourself. But that's what I would like to believe. But how does that work? How do we live a life that way? Well, the only way that we can live in, in accordance with God's will and walk according to his way is if we train ourselves to see. There's a connection here that's being made between what is seen and the action. They're not just acting apart from what they see. Their vision, the way that they see and perceive the world, and it's not just talking about what their physical eyes see. It's talking about the way in which they assess the situation, the way in which they approach what's in front of them, and the way that they see is connected to the way that they act, and the way that they act is in accordance to God's will. And so if I'm gonna act in accordance to God's will, what I have to learn to do? I have to learn to see as he sees. Y'all with me? They acted based on what they saw, but what they saw was according to God's heart. Scripture is clear in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that God does not see as man sees. It's not sometimes God does not see as man sees. So if you come to a situation with your eyes only, you will be wrong. You will miss it. The big picture will evade you if you come to the situation with your eyes only. What we have to be trained to do is we have to be trained to come into a situation, not with our own eyes, but with the eyes that God gives us to see. We have to come into a situation, not, not assessing it based on our own knowledge, based on our own understanding, but coming into the situation going, God, there is no way in which I can know all that you know about this. You must allow for me to see. You must open my eyes to see what it is that you see. And when I see what you see, then I will act accordingly. And the only way I know how to arrive in that place where my eyes see 
what God sees is through the slow formation process of, of prayer and saturation in God's word. Prayer and saturation in God's word. I wanna tell you a quick story before we, before we move on. I had the privilege of visiting um, one of the great saints of Fredonia Hill. Uh, actually, Hunter Hampton and I got to go and make a visit to Judy Brown while she was in rehab. And while we were, uh, she had fallen, had an injury, and she had spent some time um, in rehab, and she would absolutely punch me if she knew I was telling this story. Um, but as we stood there with her, we were checking on her, just asking her how she was doing. She asked Hunter to go get something off of her nightstand. So he, went, he goes over and he gets this plastic bag. And there's index cards, a bunch of three by, big stack of three by five index cards. She says, get those out for me. Get, and so we open the bag. And this is not like that fresh stack that you open from Walmart on that first day of school where they've never been touched. This is a well-worn three by five index card and a thick stack of them. I'm talking about a big stack of them. And you can tell that those have been used. They've been touched hundreds of times. They've got worn out edges and marks where her hands have been as she's read them. And you know what's on every single one of those cards? On every single one is God's word. On every single one, there's underlines and highlights. On every single one, there are promises that she's turned over on the back and written what this means about her, what this means that God has promised for this day, for this moment. And as we talked to her about her perspective, about what she, was, what she was thinking, what she was doing while she was there, that's what she told us. She said, this, this is it. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm going through. This is what keeps me grounded. And what she literally did is she stood in there and we spent half an hour as she one by one read scripture over us, one by one read God's word and talked about how, it, how those promises applied to her right then in that moment. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about prayer and saturation in God's God's word that our eyes might see what he sees because she wasn't looking at her situation like man I'm feeling really sorry for myself that I'm in here she was in pain sure but she was grounded in the promises of God his word was what dictated her future and she was going to get locked into what God saw about her situation before anything else influenced her and I walked out of there and went you got a lot of growing up to do Kendall because I get blown this way and that based on what my eyes see, based on the worry and the anxiousness and the fear of circumstances, I get all messed up. And I saw a saint sit in that room over and over and over again, rehearsing scripture, which grounded her and kept her perspective, God's perspective. And so her calm, her peace, her action in that moment wasn't just random. It was because she was grounded in the truth because her eyes see what God sees. Amen. So in verse seven and eight, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna start the sprint. You guys ready? We're gonna sprint through the rest. In verse seven through eight, there's a really interesting question that gets posed and it's, and it's giving us a hint as to what's coming uh, in, in the future. The sister said, so Miriam says to Pharaoh's daughter, so the Hebrew six-year-old says to Pharaoh's household, can I go? That should give you a hint into what's coming. There's a question, can I go? And she asks, can I go and call one of the Hebrew women to come and, be, and, and, and nurse the child? And what does Pharaoh's household say? What does she say? She says, go. 
Now that's a bit of foreshadowing because it's not gonna go that way here in just a minute. When Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, can we go? He's gonna say no. But these women that see the way that God sees when she asks, can I go? The, the answer is yes, you can go. Again, they are acting in alignment with God's will and purpose because their eyes see what he sees. Moses grows up and it gets, it gets crazy for him. I cannot imagine it's just the amount of change in his life. So it says that, that they hid him. Moses' uh, biological parents hide him for a period of time. And they hide him until he becomes not hideable. I don't know, parents with infants, like I don't know when that is, but there's some screaming that starts, okay? They hide him till he is not hideable anymore. And then they, they, uh, they go through this moment where they have to, they have to place him in, uh, in the ark. And so he then changes households for a brief moment. And then he goes back to his mother where it says that she, that she nursed him until he was of age. And so Moses has had this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the question that should start to really seep onto the page for us as we're reading is who is Moses and where does he belong? This guy's background is all over the place. Where does he belong He's named by Pharaoh's daughter, which is strange that she names him with a name that has significance in Hebrew. The name Moses means drawn out. And I just wonder, this is a little tidbit, I just wonder whether she is intentionally hiding and memorializing her defiance to the household of Pharaoh. She names him the crime that she committed, but she names him in Hebrew. I think that's cool. Say that's cool. You know what the name Moses means in Egyptian? It means son of blank. It means he's a son of, but there's, that's supposed to have other words attached to it that tell us what household he belongs to. But Moses in Egyptian means just we don't. He's a son of somewhere. Where does he belong? Where does he belong? He's a child born in the house of Levi and there's a deep connection between his mother who is Hebrew, but then he's raised in Pharaoh's household. He has a meaningful Hebrew name being raised in Pharaoh's household. And I just wonder how many of us come into the room this morning with that very same question. You look at your past, you look at the way you grew up, you look at the household you belong to or whatever else, you look at your circumstances to this point and you go, where do I belong? Where do I fit in this thing? I, I, where in the world do I belong? I've got all sorts of whatever else is back here. Where in the world do I belong? Moses was born into an oppressed immigrant family and was ultimately dislocated from his birth parents and raised in a foreign context and culture. You can imagine that that would be pretty confusing as he comes of age and tries to figure out who in the world am I? Is he Hebrew? Is he Egyptian? Is he something else? And I'm just gonna tell you this gets more complex before it gets clear, but I want you to know this, and this is, this is gonna get to our kids' bags and I'm gonna close. Kids, this is one of the best things we've ever done for you. Check this out. And, this is, and John Kennan bet I wouldn't do this on the stage, but John Kennan now owes me $10. What happens when the wind blows? 
What happens to this thing? It spins. It goes into chaos mode, doesn't it? Right? And that's, if we're honest, that's a lot of our circumstance. That's a lot of our background. It's like, man, the circumstances of my life were chaos. Moses' life circumstances were chaos. But you know what was crazy about that whole story? As the wind is blowing, as the chaos of his circumstances are unfolding, there's also a steady hand. And where is that steady hand? Who is that steady hand? It's the steady hand of our sovereign God who has plans and purposes for his life that he could never have imagined. But God's hand is steadying the ship and God is using over and over and over again, God is using people who see like he sees to accomplish his purposes and to help Moses understand who he is in the Lord. And I just can't help but think that that's the story of the church That's the story of the church. A group of people who ought to see as Yahweh sees and act in obedience to help others connect with who God has called them to be. This is us, that by the power of the Spirit, we're supposed to see and hear in alignment with God and his purposes and act accordingly. And that's how I wanna challenge you this morning. I wanna invite you to stand for our invitation and, and just challenge you this morning, first of all, to think about your own story and your background. Think, think about maybe the way that you've tried to figure out who am I? I wanna give you a bit of a spoiler alert. Moses doesn't know the answer to this question until Yahweh speaks to him. He doesn't figure this out by diving into his background more. He doesn't figure it out by going, oh, okay, now I understand. I've kind of figured out my family history. His family history stays complex, but there's clarity when Yahweh speaks to him and tells him who he is and who he belongs to. And that's our story. There's all sorts of voices in your life trying to tell you who you are and where you belong. And I just wanna tell you that the only way that you know the truth to that question is when Yahweh speaks. And in Christ Jesus, he has said that he, his desire is to make us his own, that we belong to him. That he loves us with an everlasting love and his desire is to be in covenant relationship with you and me, that you might grow up as a child in the household of the one true God. That's who you are. I also wanna challenge you as you go into your week, I wanna ask you to think about which eyes, which set of eyes you are using to assess the situations in front of you. Are we looking at things as man sees? Are we allowing the word of God and the spirit of God to change our eyes, that when we look out into the world, when we look into the situations that are around us, we see as he sees and act accordingly. So I wanna just invite you to step into that this morning, however the spirit is leading you. If you need to spend time up here and pray, great. You're welcome to do that. We'll have prayer partners in the back if you need to pray with somebody. And if you need to go pray with someone else in the room, please feel free to move around the room. And our prayer is simply this, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see as you see that we might act in alignment with the will and the purpose of God. In Jesus' name, amen.